0: All right. Good morning, Story family. How are we doing today? Everybody doing good? All right. I want to welcome everybody that's joining us here in our still new-ish, like six or seven months old, Uh, temporary home here in the Museum District, also over at our uh, Timber Grove campus, our family over there at 8200 Washington Avenue. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Also, those of you joining us online, wherever you are in the world, we're so glad that you're part of the story. Man, we had a week in Houston, Texas. First of all, those temps were crazy. Can we just talk about how hot that weather got over the last couple of weeks? Been a nice little little break this weekend, kind of nice, but we had an incredible week at the Story Church, y'all. Like, uh, one of the best ever. We had kids in this building from, like, 8 in the morning until 3 or 4 in the afternoon. In the morning, we had our first ever vacation Bible school that went off uh, without a hitch. Just great success on that. And I want to thank all of our staff and volunteers and parents, everybody that made that possible. Everybody's... All right, right, let's go. Come on. uh, Everybody's... Everybody pitched in. Everybody's worn out. Um, Everybody's kind of bleary-eyed this morning in the children's ministry wing. Y'all be sure and give them an extra something, encouragement today, all right? Also, we had our um, apologetics camp for students, and we've got some really motivated students. This was voluntary. And I'm not sure if I was a kid, when I was a teenager, that if I had the choice between, you know, spending my summers at home or out with friends or spending my whole afternoon at the church learning about apologetics at apologetics camp with Pastor Eric and a bunch of other adults, I don't know, like, I'm not sure I would have chosen apologetics camp, let's be real. But uh, we had uh, like over 20 middle and high school students that are learning um, basically how to explain and even defend the Christian worldview um, in light of a, a world that's not always in agreement with the Christian worldview. And so how to do that graciously, how to do that like Jesus. And so Um, I'm a little worn out, but in the best possible way, and it helps this week um, to know that the Astros haven't lost since last Sunday, and that we beat the Yankees twice on Thursday. That was awesome, and uh, my prediction is that by this time, next Sunday, we will have the best record in the major leagues, as it should be, as the Lord intended, all right? Okay. Now that I got that out of the way, that's off my chest, Uh, let's talk about the deadly sin of pride. <laughs> Does anybody see the problem? <laughs> all right, this is our uh, last and final uh, week of our seven-week series on the seven deadly sins. We've talked about them all, from greed and gluttony and envy and, and sloth and wrath and I'm forgetting one, and pride today. And so we saved pride for last. You know, um, maybe it should have been First because it is, uh, it's always been at the top of the list. When they came up with the list of the seven deadly sins, they listed pride first for a reason, because pride has, uh, I think, rightly been called the mother of all sins. We're going to talk about why that is um, in, just, uh, in just a minute. But, um, but yeah, uh, next week we'll move on to a new series on the book of James, um, which is called Less Talking, More Walking. James does not mince words. It's going to be it's gonna be. It's gonna hit you right between the eyes. I'm afraid. It's uh, it's an awesome book, and uh, we're gonna spend a few weeks with um, James. All right. So let's get into pride today. Um, every week with every deadly sin, what we've done is tried to offer some definition that we're working with. When Pastor Eric says pride for the next 25 minutes, what's he talking about? And we've leaned on like Merriam-Webster or maybe some biblical definition of the different kinds of uh, deadly sins. Uh, This definition I'm giving you, I came up with on my own. It's three words, super simple, just cut to the quick, right? I, I believe the deadly sin of pride can be summed up as pride is deserving. Pride is deserving, okay? So if you find yourself at any point in life when you are convinced that you deserve Good things in life. And You have uh, arrived at a point in your life. You've worked hard your whole life. You've earned a certain level of respect or a certain level of pay. You deserve certain kind of treatment. You deserve certain kind of comfort in life. And and that is what pride looks like in the day to day trenches of life. And uh, and you know, pride can sneak up on you. And 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 it's the sneakiest of the seven deadly sins, and we'll talk about a few ways that I see that happening um, in just a a moment, but I want you to first see that pride is uh, a doorway to the other deadly sins, and to really all other sins. We talked about all deadly sins being deadly because they open doorways to darkness. They're like gateway sins. Pride is the first gateway, and I can draw straight lines from all the other, like, the other six deadly sins to pride. Like, let's, let's talk about, you know, envy or greed, or gluttony. Like, pride would say, no matter how much I have, I deserve a little more, don't I? Like, I'm a hard worker. I'm a pretty good person. (laughs) I'm doing my best here. Don't I deserve a little more? And so, suddenly, you're not only proud, you're opened up to these other sins. You know, lust works the same way. Why shouldn't I act on these desires The Bible says, God gave me these desires. I work hard. Don't I deserve to have my desires fulfilled or my needs met is how we would probably say that. But the key operative word is deserve. That's the word we have to watch out for. And I don't think we really see that as a bad word when we probably should. The more we say I deserve, the prouder we probably are. Wrath can be drawn, a line can be drawn from from pride to wrath. Why shouldn't? I get angry when I deserve what they're keeping from me or what they're not giving me when I don't get what I deserve. Of course I have a right to be angry. Sloth can have a straight line drawn to it as well. Why should I have to keep working and slaving away for the things I so clearly already deserve? And you can do the same thing with the Ten Commandments, and I had a little fun with this this week. How can I draw straight lines between violating the Ten Commandments and the sin of pride? I'll tell you how. It's pretty easy Thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not steal. I mean, pride would say it's not stealing if you deserve it. <laughs> like, can, can you really define it as stealing or as envying or coveting when you clearly deserve what you're after? Adultery, you know, that, that, uh, one of those commandments uh, against adultery can, can, be, uh, can be connected to pride this way. I deserve to feel good. Uh, keep the Sabbath holy. I am okay as things stand. I don't need your boundaries. I don't need your breaks. I'm strong enough. I'm good enough to handle this life and this workload on my own. I've got it together. I don't need to slow down. Thou shalt not not bear false witness. I'm not lying. I'm telling my truth, and I deserve the right to tell my truth. Truth, y'all see how this works. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Oh my God, stop nagging me. It's like, you see how this works. <laughs> like, you excuse yourself from clear sins whenever pride takes over. Thou shalt not have, thou shalt have no other gods before me. God, don't worry, I'll let you be my co pilot. And God's in heaven going. Thanks, buddy. But you realize if I'm your co-pilot, you're a co-pilot too. (laughs) So you're calling yourself God and you don't even get it. That's how sneaky pride can be, All right? So C.S. Lewis uh, once said, as long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you, such as God. Proverbs 6 listed uh, seven things that God hates or detests. And at the top of that list was pride, a prideful eye, or a prideful look, a haughty look. Why does God call out pride first? And why is it listed at the top of the list of the seven deadlies? It's because it's just that dangerous. It's just that pervasive. It's something that sneaks in without you noticing it, and you think pride is someone else's problem. I experienced that problem this week. Honestly, y'all, I sat down really a couple weeks ago to start thinking about pride and writing down my notes for this message, and I was just like, Lord, I'm at a loss. Show me what it must be like to live with pride so I can talk to the proud people in my congregation. (laughs) Y'all, as though I don't deal with it myself? Are you kidding me? Of course I deal with the sin of pride, but pride will convince you Otherwise, I've never stood in front of its congregation and said, You guys pray for me. I'm struggling with pride. But I've done that with lust. I've done it with sloth and apathy. I've done it with other sins, but never have I stood and confessed pride. Rarely does anyone stand and confess pride. There's a few ways I want to talk about how pride really gets sneaky with us so that you can be prepared to look out for it. My hunch is that you're already succumbing to pride, and I hope that this will help you fight the battle uh, against it so that uh, you can preserve your heart as God intends you to. The first way I've seen pride get sneaky is that pride will make you proud of your humility. Pride (laughs) will make you proud of your humility. Amen, right? He gets it. He's super humble, right? <laughs> Y'all see what I'm saying? So what's going on when I'm sitting at my desk going, Lord, show me what it must feel like to be proud so I can talk to my congregation about this problem? Like, what's going on there? It's the sneaky nature of pride. I'm, I'm a little bit like how I've always imagined Moses to be struggling with pride. Moses, who in the book of Numbers, chapter 12, verse 3, the Bible says Moses was the, a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. But if you're unfamiliar with the first five books of the Bible, of which Numbers is a part, you may not know that Moses wrote them. And so <laughs> Moses clearly thought of himself, uh, you know, a, as a very humble man, um, the most humble man on the face of the earth. Now, I have to be real careful here because I I don't want to make light of this scripture. I do believe that, that the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write that at a certain point in his life, but at other points in his life, it's clearly on display how the sin of pride snuck in under the veil of humility and had its way with Moses as well. And even if you're from a humble background and you've always considered yourself a sort of humble man or a humble woman and you've always sort of kept it you know quiet and peaceful on the home front you've always worked diligently you're a self-made man or a self-made woman you've sort of pulled up your own bootstraps or whatever that expression is and you've done it yourself right that's exactly what the enemy wants you to think of as your preacher stands up here and talks about pride because <laughs> it's not your problem and in fact it is It's amazing to me how I, given my track record of, you know, sins and mistakes and miscalculations, and given my upbringing even, it's amazing that I would even be capable of pride. Because, you know, I come from pretty humble beginnings, let's say. You know, I feel like sometimes I've got that politician's son was a, my, my father was a coal miner it was like like that kind of stump speech but y'all you know, I come from like pretty humble beginnings my parents were 20 when they had me they were 16 when they had my older sister the accident and um <laughs> and when they brought me home from the hospital we lived in a in a, a trailer home we lived in a mobile home for the first few years of my life and um you know, that's that's humble beginnings. We barely got by. They they were doing their, their best, and they, they held it together. They put food on the table. Sometimes that food was Spam. A lot of times that food was Spam growing up. Some of y'all are so privileged you know what Spam is, okay? I ate a lot of Spam growing up. You can look it up, and we put pineapples on top of it to feel fancy, and then we baked it in the oven for a while, and Spam was a staple of my Diet. How does a young man who grows up eating Spam with pineapple on top of it ever struggle with pride? I grew up in a little town called Red Lick, Texas. It wasn't even on any maps. No one knew about it. It wasn't incorporated until I was a teenager. And then when it first incorporated, it had 254 um, uh, citizens or members of the community. And uh, when I was little, it was even less than that. Everybody knew everybody. If you wanted to, you know, get out there and date somebody, it was probably a good idea to go date someone the next town over, lest you learn the lesson I learned in fourth grade. Eric, Mandy's your cousin. All right, so one of them towns. You follow? Okay. She was a second cousin, but still. Okay, so it's dangerous dating. Anyway, how does someone that comes from that end up struggling with pride? Every Fourth of July, it was the biggest day of the year in Red Lake, Texas, because Red Lickians love... America almost as much as they love Jesus, and we would gather on the front lawn of the church every Fourth of July, and we would have what I can only—and I mean this with all due respect—I can only refer to it as like the redneck Olympics. Every Fourth of July, in the heat of summer, in Northeast Texas, we would have these games that we would play, and we would—it was a competition, a, a all-day competition that culminated with the fireworks and all that. The fireworks at night were kind of like the medal ceremony, like who won the day and. It was serious business, and I look back, and it's so silly, but we played games that included things like the three-legged race, and the three-legged race is when you find a partner with the same length legs as you, and you tie your inside legs together with pantyhose for some reason. It just added to the humiliation of it all, and (laughs) you tied your inside legs together, and then you tried to coordinate as though you were conjoined twins with three legs, and you ran a race, and we had we had sack races where you jump inside of a burlap sack and grown men would do this. Grown men with jobs and families would hop into these sacks that used to be full of feed or something, you know, and and, and hop and try to win. It was highly competitive. We had wheelbarrow races where, it sounds exactly what it sounds like, you would put your friend in a wheelbarrow and then put their life at risk, <laughs> really. <laughs> Several injuries over the years, I can recall, and push them as fast as you can with that one little wheel, you know, in the front of the wheelbarrow, and then you'd switch places, they'd push you back. We had human wheelbarrow races where you got rid of the wheelbarrow, your partner was a wheelbarrow, you'd hold their legs, they'd crawl with their hands. Again, very serious business, lots of fire ant bites in those days, I remember. <laughs> we had um, uh, tractor races, lawnmower races, which is a smaller tractor, and we had um, dirt bike races and bicycle races. We had frog races, which were my favorite because you got to catch your fastest frog you could find the night before and then, you know, put them all in the center and draw a circle on the outside. Whoever's frog jumped out, y'all know the game, right? And we had turtle races which was less exciting for obvious reasons. Still fun to catch a turtle, but, man, we had to eat lunch over the turtle race because that took a while for the turtles to finally win the race. And, and, and through it all, the, year after year, the, the one event everyone waited for was something called the cow chip toss or the cow patty throw. And if you're not familiar with those terms, I just invite you to, to imagine the worst. <sighs> And you've got it, <laughs> okay? So the cow patty toss involved uh, everybody who was competing, gathering around a trailer or a box full of what I can only assume some farmer had uh, been scooping uh, manure out of his pastures and, uh, and and loading up his box or his truck with it. I know some of y'all are like, what? I've taken... I've taken communion from those hands. I know. <laughs> I know what you're thinking, man. I know. I'm not proud of it, right? But I kind of am, I guess. I think that's the point of this whole story. It's like it's, it's like I, I think back to that, and I won five years in a row, and I'll never forget that I won in the kids' division. I won the Cow patty Pals five years straight. Like that's a, one of my greatest achievements <laughs> in life. <laughs> How does someone who grew up like that grow up, you know, after uh competitively sifting through cow patties with his bare hands. Like, how does that guy grow up to struggle with pride? I guess if I can, anyone can. And if I ha- have this struggle, I would imagine you do too. Uh, the, the devil works on our weaknesses, and sometimes our weaknesses is our own sense of humility. And uh, if only it were easy, as easy as, uh, as saying I'm humble now. (laughs) Look where I came from. I'm humble now. If if only it were that easy, we all could be humble. We all could overcome pride. But pride has done a number on me, and I know I'm not alone there. The second way I see pride working on us, other than just making us proud of our humility or proud of our past, our humble roots, let's say, is, uh, is pride sneaks up on us by telling us we're essential when really we're dispensable. This is not a feel-good message, uh, this part, okay? So hang in with me. We have a self-esteem culture that's like, do not tell my child that he or she is dispensable. I have worked for 15 long years to make sure this child knows they're essential and uh, they're precious and unique and valuable. Y'all, sometimes we need to tell our kids what my grandparents used to tell us just like you are unique and special, just like everyone else, right? It's like we just need a little dose of reality sometimes. I understand we need to, there's some people who do need to be encouraged and puffed up, some people that are way down in the dumps, but most of us need a reality check sometimes to remember that no matter how successful we get or how blessed we are or whatever, we are always replaceable. We're always dispensable. Okay, we see this problem of pride, sneaking up on Moses, the same guy who was the most fam- most, most <laughs> humble man in the world over, right? So in the book of Exodus, after the slaves were freed, God freed the Hebrew slaves from Egypt and set them free in their new life. Moses was tasked with building this new civilization, and at first, he started to build it solely around himself. He made himself essential to the system, and this is not uncommon. Leaders often will build systems that in which we are essential churches are famous or i should say infamous for building systems where only a few are essential pastors love to feel essential and so we build everything around us you got someone in the hospital call the pastor why why not call one of the 100 other members you know in the church they're just as just as, as called to be you know uh, ambassadors of christ and the gospel they got bibles they can pray why you got to call a professional? Because we told you it's like that. That's also why in a lot of churches you'll find the same sweet old lady has served as the church council chair for 87 years or something. It's like, yeah, we create these systems, these models where only a few are essential. This is not godly. It's not good. One time when Moses was working himself thin, he had sent his family away from where he was, so that they could go and live with for a while with, uh, with his wife's parents and, and just kind of be part of a family elsewhere, because Moses was too busy, he was too important, too essential. And at one point in Exodus chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law, who I love, Jethro, comes back to town, and he brings Moses' family back to him hilariously, I think. It's like, no, bro, not my problem anymore. It's like, (laughs) it's time to man up, time to get your priorities straight. And Jethro, after an evening of celebrating with Moses, at first he's gracious, he celebrates with Moses all that God has done to set his people free. Praise God. So he doesn't go after him right away, but Jethro has something to say. To Moses. And this is in uh, Exodus chapter 18. If y'all want to grab your Bibles in the uh, chair backs in front of you, or if you brought your own, kudos to you. I always encourage y'all to bring Bibles with you. But um, you can follow along in the in the chair Bibles, or if uh, you've got a phone app at, at Timber Grove, uh, I know that there's Bibles uh, available there as well. But uh, if you're online, you can look it up on your computer if you like. Whatever works for you. Exodus 18 verse 13. So, what happened the next day. Listen to how Jethro, in his wisdom, checks Moses. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they all stood around him from morning till evening. And when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, wow, I'm proud of you. Nope, (laughs) kidding. He said, what is this that you're doing for the people? What are you doing? Why do you alone sit as judge? while all these people stand around you from morning till evening. Moses answered, because I'm the most humble man on the face of the earth. No, (laughs) he answered, because the people come to me. I'm essential. I'm essential. I'm the one. The people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Listen to what Moses' father-in-law says. Jethro replied, what you are doing is not good. You think it's good because it looks like yeoman's work. It looks like you're serving the people. It looks like you're a servant of God, but what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out the work is too heavy for you. You can't handle it alone. Listen to me now, and I will give you some advice, and God, may God be with you. And then, uh, in the interest of time, I'll just tell you, Jethro advises Moses to share the load, identify some godly leaders in the community to lean on, so that the responsibility doesn't all fall on Moses. Now, that might have been a hit to Moses' pride, and rightfully so. Never should we create any illusions for ourselves or others that If not for me, this whole thing could fall apart. Pastors are the worst at this. That's one reason why over the last several years I've tried to preach less and share the burden of preaching, for example. And instead of us, you know, preaching 48 times a year like I did in 2016, to preach more like 38 to 40 times a year, at least here at the story, and spend the rest of those weeks pouring into our other young emerging talented, gifted preachers, lest it all become about me or my voice. I get sick of hearing my own voice. I can only imagine how y'all feel about hearing it all the time. Thank you for being gracious with me and wanting you know, me to teach and all of that. But, but this is a, a guard, a safeguard against our pride, against my pride, right? Um, and I've gotten some really, really good advice From preachers over the years like one preacher who told me be careful not to lead your church in such a way that your people say your name more than they say the name of Jesus that's easier said than done because pride is such a beast but I'm not essential here God forbid something happened to me the story has to go on the church for sure goes on with or without me And lest my pride get in the way, I better get on my knees daily and just be grateful for every single opportunity God gives me to lead his church. Instead of being entitled to it, instead of thinking I deserve it, I wake up grateful for every chance. And I take to heart what another great preacher once said when he said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. There's your gut check of the day. You want your name on buildings? You want to leave a legacy that, li- that outlives you, a legacy of your own, an Eric Huffman legacy? Forget it. Lest you fall prey to the sin of pride. If you want to build your own legacy more than you want to leave a legacy of Jesus, forget it. All we're here to do is preach the gospel, live the gospel, share the gospel, love your neighbor, love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and die and be forgotten. Y'all know there's freedom in that? That's not us. That shouldn't be taken as harsh or judgmental. Imagine how your life would change if that became your motto. How liberating it would be if it wasn't all up to you to build something that people would remember you by. What if it's not about you being remembered, but just about you running this leg of the race for Jesus? And then once it's over, you die, you're forgotten, but you're with him. That's the piece of the gospel. But pride will Sneak up on you and steal that from you. The third way I've seen pride sneak up on people is by convincing us that we're shepherds when the Bible clearly says we're just sheep. Now, I know that the 23rd Psalm is everyone's favorite. Even non-believers know the 23rd Psalm begins with, The Lord is my shepherd, which gives us some image of us being sheep of his pasture. We've sort of sentimentalized that, like, of course we are. We deserve that kind of treatment. I mean, he's the best shepherd in the world, and I'm a pretty darn good sheep. So, like, I deserve that kind of care. Thank you for agreeing with me, Jesus. This is the sort of image that comes to mind when we think of this sentimentalized version of the 23rd Psalm. However, if you grew up in places like Red Lake, Texas and spent any significant time around sheep in your life, you know that it's very rare that a sheep looks this adorable or uh, uh, worthy of love. Sheep are, in fact, incredibly dumb and defenseless creatures. I'm not sure it, it occurs to us just how much of a humbling, borderline insult it is that the Bible insists on calling us sheep over and over and over again. Maybe there's something about God trying to keep us humble here. After all, have you ever seen a sheep do anything awesome? How many of you have gone to the circus and watched sheep do all those cool tricks? None of you have. (laughs) Because sheep are too dumb for the circus. Sheep are the only domesticated animals that could not fend for themselves under any circumstances in the wild. They have no fight mechanism. They have no claws, teeth, speed. They have no fight or flight mechanisms, right? It's like there's no way for them. When they get scared, they literally just pass out. That's... That's all sheep do. That's what the Bible says you are. And so instead of Jesus cradling a cute little lamb, when we hear the 23rd Psalm, we should probably think of something like this image instead. (laughs) See this? God says, this is you. This is me. Relative to God, we're pretty dumb. We're pretty helpless, mostly defenseless. Maybe this is God's way of pride-proofing his people. And let's not forget that King David was the one who wrote the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I'm just a sheep in his pasture. But that same King David grew in power, grew in influence, and grew in pride. And he grew to think of himself more of a shepherd than a sheep. And one day that pride, that shepherd mentality caught up to him because a shepherd who is entitled is deserving of certain things. He deserved to stay home from battle instead of going to war with his troops. He was tired. He was the shepherd. He slept with another man's wife. He deserved to have his needs met. He was the king. He was the one. He, he was essential. He deserved to take another man's life because he deserved to be unaccountable. King David deserved this, deserved that, deserved the other. That's exactly what pride looks like. Romans 12.3 gives us the antidote to this. Romans 12.3 says, By the grace given to me, I say to each one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. And we live in a puffed-up world that encourages us to puff one another up, especially when we're raising kids. The self-esteem culture is so intense, like we must make our kids feel better about themselves all the time. We must give them ribbons for showing up, and we blame them for having that entitled mentality when we're the ones entitling them. Like we have this deep sense that we should never feel bad about ourselves and never make anyone else feel bad about themselves. This is clearly pride sneaking up on us. And Christians have such a a viable, wonderful alternative to offer, a different posture, a posture of humility, the posture of Christ, really. Philippians 2 shows us, tells us exactly what Christ did. He's the only one who ever would have had reason to puff himself up, and yet he emptied himself out, taking the form of a slave emptying himself out for our behalf, becoming a servant, becoming nothing. And it was his good pleasure, his joy to do so, so that we might see what salvation looks like in the flesh. That's what Jesus did. He humbled himself, made himself a servant. And uh, in so doing, he resisted that sin that has claimed so many of us, the sin of pride. All right, I think about the last year at the story. And some of y'all will not be able to relate to this because you're too new to know what the story went through before we came to this location. But last year was extremely hard for our community. We faced a kind of sudden eviction, and uh, we faced a a sudden separation from a denomination that had sort of sheltered us. And you know, there's such a thing as being over-sheltered. And I look back at who the story was a year ago, and and I see that myself and Pastor Gio and our staff and, and our congregation, we were all extremely sheltered, living under the protective umbrellas of not just a very sort of wealthy, well-off uh, mother church, but, but under this umbrella of this denomination that, that told us, hey, we've got you if things fall apart. We, we've got you, Pastor Eric and Pastor Gio. If your church doesn't want you anymore, we'll reassign you somewhere else. you know the United Methodist Church offers its pastors, its ordained pastors, guaranteed appointments for life? We walked away from that, walked away from that security. That's like the best union the world has ever seen. Guaranteed appointments for life. Teachers be jealous of our union deal with the United Methodist Church, and we walked away from it. And it's been a lot of learning since then, because it wasn't just that stuff. It was like on the campus we were on in River Oaks, uh, anytime our staff or our teams or our groups needed tables set up and copy made and water delivered, all it took was one phone call, and there it just materialized out of nowhere. Someone uh, just showed up with it. It was amazing. We paid for it. Like, it was in our budget, right? Y'all paid for it, but it was just like magic. It was so easy, And we didn't have to worry about having a staff person drive up here at 7 in the morning to open up or back here at 9 o'clock at night to close up. And and we had security and and janitorial staff that would always make sure of those things for us. And, And, man, it was nice. And our staff always makes jokes about, man, we miss them days. But it also made us soft and ungrateful and entitled. And now, whenever we walk in to this building and the room happens to be set up because some poor soul knew that we needed a little help this week, there's true gratitude. Or even when we, like we always do now, have to set up our own rooms and make our own coffee and make our own water and Pastor Eric, Pastor Gio, or Rolando, or Dylan, or Kat, or somebody else has to come back up at night to lock up and we're night security now, baby. It's like, (laughs) it's all on us now. And I wouldn't change a thing because the best thing that's happened to the story was the first year and a half when we had to set up our own chairs and tear them down and set up a stage and take down a temporary set up every week because it, it toughened us. Maybe the worst thing was the next three or four years where everything was done for us and all we had to do was write a check. But the second best season we've been through is this last one when we've learned again what it means to carry your own water, to be a servant, to be humble, because the humble heart, the humble posture is the posture that wakes up every day and says, wow, to every good gift, because when you're humble, you don't think of yourself as deserving, and that's freedom. There's fresh coffee in the pot. The humble heart says, wow. The proud heart says, Folgers. (laughs) Beware, beware. Your spouse gives you an unexpected peck on the cheek in the morning. The humble heart says, Wow, I am loved. The proud heart says, but this other thing isn't being met, this other need. I wish she had loved me last night, or I wish that he had loved me enough to take my car to the shop. Or I it's like we start to pick each other apart. That's why in Philippians 2, which I'll encourage y'all to study this week, just study the chapter of Philippians 2 this week in your prayer time, devotional time at home, that's why it begins with, in your relationships be as Christ is to one another because without this humble spirit, you'll pick each other apart and wear each other out. I think about my kids doing so good lately with the chores. I've 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 been on them lately. Like, don't make mommy and daddy tell you to do your chores. Just do them. And sometimes they'll take the trash out. That's one of their chores. And I don't have to tell them to do it. Ah. Oh. Then sometimes they'll do that and forget to put the liner back in. The humble heart says, wow, they're starting to get it. The proud heart says, but the liner. <laughs> so it's like, <sighs> it's never enough. Pride is a vicious, angry machine. It's a perfect recipe for perpetual misery. That's why God detests it. That's why the Bible warns against it. That's why it's atop the list of the seven deadly sins. And the antidote is humility, realizing that you're no one relative to God. You're nobody. You deserve nothing. And yet by his grace, he has given you everything. And so all you can do is wake up every morning and go, wow, wow, wow. Why, God, do you love me so well in good times and in bad? Wow, that is humility. What if your mission in life is not to be successful, it's not to be wealthy, it's not to be powerful, it's not to be known, it's not to have your name on buildings. What if your mission in life is to live the gospel humbly and then to die at peace and then to be forgotten by this world? remembered forever by Jesus. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for this uh, stark reminder today of the danger we're in when it comes to the sin of pride. It is indeed sneaky, this one, and uh, it snuck up on all of us in different ways at different times and to different degrees, but uh, we recognize that we're all vulnerable and we all struggle. Lord, we pray for new hearts again this morning that your Holy Spirit would come right now, Lord, and not just come into this room, we know you're here, but that you would come into us, into our hearts, and continue this remodeling work you're doing in us, and that we would be open to you. We're tired of living this miserable existence that pride has, uh, has done for us, Lord, and, and instead we want to have the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ that lays itself out, empties itself, pours itself out, and, and, and all for your sake for the sake of this world that we live in, that all might know you and the hope of your gospel. And so we pray, Lord, as broken sinners, full of hope and gratitude because of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.